Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group. Recognized market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. I am here with Dean Wilmore, Executive Vice President with Colliers International. Dean is an industrial broker and industrial product type specialist here in Las Vegas, Nevada. So I thought you were only in the business for 25 years. Turns out it's longer. Yes. Yeah. 38 years. 38 years. Uh, and you've been an SIOR for 25. Talk about what is an SIOR? What does that mean? An SIOR is a, is a designation that you earn through, um, oh, through education, number one. Uh, they want you to uh, have a college degree. If you can't have a college degree, you can test out of it. Uh, you have to have a certain level of commission income over a period of time. Uh, I believe in, in our market, it's uh, five years minimum. And uh, you have to have the uh, approval of your peers in the business. You're required to get at least two qualification letters from from your peers and uh, that recommend you to the society. So... So you have to learn some stuff. You have to hit the numbers. You can't just you know take the classes, pass the test, and you're in. You have to apply it all into your practice. And then the third part is you have to be voted in by your peers. Correct. So this isn't for for anyone just to walk on. Correct. Yeah, and it's a it's a it's a great organization. It's um, very hard to get into. Um, there's very few of us. There's only I believe 2,800 SIORs in the whole world. So, and I was just um, at the SIR conference in yeah. Denver, and I think they talked about there's 100,000 commercial real estate yes. professionals. So out of 100,000, there's only 2,800. Yes. Yeah. And in Las Vegas, I believe we've got 33, 34 members now. Out of about 1,000 professionals. Yes. So actually more than the national on a percentage basis. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, we've, we've been bumping up our numbers. All right, so let's continue to talk about you. You've achieved the prestigious Everest Club at Colliers International, which is a very high production threshold, and that's not just a local recognition from what I understand. It's across Colliers nationally. Uh, Yes. And you've trained over a dozen agents locally, myself included, some very successful people out there, learned the business from you, and we'll talk a lot more about that. Okay. Uh, I know you to be an avid runner, a family man, I understand you're an aspiring fly fisherman. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd like to be, yeah. And the, well, the, one of the coolest things right now is you have uh, the unique pleasure of working with your son, who recently just joined the industry, and specifically working with you. So that's really cool. That is one of the coolest things ever, yes. Um, yeah, it's uh, very, very special for me. So we talked a little bit about about who you are. We talked a little bit about SIOR and some stuff that you're involved with. But jump in a little bit more and tell us, you know, what is it that you do as an industrial broker and a little bit more about uh, who is Dean Wilmore? Well, what we do, I mean, we help. I think one of the primary jobs a broker does is helps um, interpret data and make sense of it. So, 
you know, our, our clients, our customers, we're, we're inundated now with information every day. So it's up to people like us to, to bring it, uh, interpret that information, and then be able to give our clients good advice and um, uh, put that data to good use. Um, we solve problems for people. We help businesses grow. We help businesses relocate. We help recruit uh, business to the state and to Las Vegas. And it's a very rewarding job. We, you know, we, and I think a big part of our business too is we help businesses grow, which, which helps the economy grow. It creates more jobs, uh, more income for the state. So um, um, anyway, I love what I do. So there's, a, there's in commercial real estate, there's different product types. There's retail shopping centers. There's office buildings. There's apartments. Yes. There's industrial. Why did you pick industrial to specialize in? When I was in college, um, my oldest brother, uh, Steve, had suggested I look at commercial real estate. I was in college, and I thought I wanted to be an architect, and that didn't work out. And uh, so I got a job with uh, two brokers at Grubb & Ellis in Tucson. They happened to be industrial brokers. And they took me with them on, on some of their client meetings. And I was fascinated by one of their clients had developed a new type of cathode ray tube. Um, I'm and, sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a, a ca- for televisions or <laughs> screens. But I was just fascinated by it, and uh, he took me to some other people that uh, were manufacturers, and it just really intrigued me, um, and I thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. So um, so it picked you almost. Yeah, kind of. Um, you know, the, that summer I, I interned at uh, C.B. Richard Ellis in Phoenix. They, uh, they, this was 1980. They had just purchased... Um, Three uh, IBM 8088 computers, desktop computers, first first desktop, and they wanted to build a database for Phoenix, and so they hired me and two other guys to drive the the city, Phoenix, Glendale, Scottsdale, and just record every building out there. I was in charge of the industrial buildings, and one guy did office, one guy did retail. That you know gave me a, an idea that I used later on to to come up with a database of industrial property in, in Las Vegas, which we, uh, we worked on diligently for a long time. So is there a specific deal right now that you're working on that you can talk about that you're just giddy about, just like the TV screens back then? Um, I mean, I, giddy, no. I, I, um, I, I've got some interesting deals working, but I just I don't like to talk about deals that I've got in progress because it tends to jinx them. So Tell us about one that you just closed that you're, you can talk about. I was really happy. I, I, uh, I worked on a, uh, a, an industrial portfolio at the airport earlier this year uh, that I sold for a client called Stockbridge. It was uh, a 200,000 square foot industrial portfolio leased, and it was very hotly uh, bid on. Um, we were able to achieve a higher price than, than what we thought we could get. Uh, the uh, Stockbridge got a fantastic return uh, on a property they were into for about $14 million. We sold for uh, uh, 20, 
23 million, a little over 23 million. So they made a great profit in a couple of years. So I was very happy about that one. So what does that say about where our market is right now that you were able to get more than you expected? Uh, I think it says that um, the appetite for uh, the investor appetite for industrial product in Las Vegas is still red hot. Um, there's not enough product to, uh, uh, to satisfy the demand. I think real estate uh, in general and industrial real estate in particular is one of the best investments anybody can make. And uh, I think it will continue to be a, a great investment in the foreseeable future. I don't see any uh, dark clouds or I don't see any red flags in the, on the horizon. I think the market's going to be continue to be good for a while. And it's, I'm bullish about it because what I see, it's all based on supply and demand. I don't see any I think lenders are still being incredibly cautious and uh, smart with their loans. There, there's no easy money, easy credit deals out there. Uh, so what uh, buyers uh, buy, they have to earn it. So that gives us a picture about who you are. gives us a picture about what you do. Uh, this show is, is called Takeaways, and it's about my takeaways from people who have influenced me. You're certainly one of those people. So I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you, what has been the single most influential thing or event that has shaped you the most? Uh, I, I got a good story for you. All right. Um, so when I was um, new in the business, I, uh, my, my, uh, my numbers were not there. It was my first year. I thought I was going to have to quit um, because I was heavy in, heavy in debt at the time. I thought I was going to have to move in with my mom and dad. I think I was 28 years old. So how and how much is heavy in debt? I think I was like thirty thousand in in debt on oh. my credit cards, and um, my broker at the time told me to to get out of the office and go cold call, which was great advice. And I think it's really important for young brokers in the business, especially your first two years, to to be out of the office physically in person cold calling at least fifty percent of the time, because you've got to learn you know you got to learn the product. But I, I was driving, and I noticed a, a nice piece of land on I-15 in North Las Vegas. There was a little house on it. So I stopped and parked and knocked on the door. And an old guy answered the door uh, very gruffly and said, uh, what the hell do you want? And I said, I'm Dean Wilmore. I, I just was driving by. I know she got a great piece of property here. Uh, would you consider selling it? And he said, stop wasting my time. And before he could shut the door, I said, is that a crucifix behind you? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, are you Catholic? I'm Catholic. And he said, well, why the hell didn't you tell me so? <laughs> so he invited me in, and um, I ended up uh, putting a deal together with him and uh, the company I had worked for before, Dermody Properties. And the, the interesting thing is, is this gentleman's name is Joe Argier. He wouldn't sign anything. And uh, I said, well, how much of a commission are you willing to pay me? And he said, well, you, I'll give you anything you can get from this buyer over a million and a half. So we ended up making a deal with uh, Dermody for uh, $1.7 million. But I had nothing in writing. 
And um, everyone in my office, including my broker, was hounding me to get something in writing. And Joe kept telling me, you just got to trust me. You got to believe in me. And the funny thing is, in my gut, I did believe him. And I said, it's gonna, not going to be a problem. Uh, he said he promised he would call escrow at closing and tell them to cut us a check for 200000 He said, I've got his word on that. And my broker threw up her hands and walked away very angry. Anyway, it closed. Um, how, how long was the closing? I was a, probably a 60-day escrow. So I was sweating bullets for, <laughs> I was gonna... for a long time. And, and the other brokers in the office were kind of making fun of me. And, and I said, uh, you know, look, if I get this check, you know, you're, I'll jump in the fountain in the middle of the office park. And, and uh, anyway, I got a call from escrow the day it closed. And she said, uh, I have a nice check for you. And uh, I made a $200,000 commission. And that really saved my, my butt. Uh, and um, I made a very dear friend uh, for, for life. I, Joe passed away a number of years ago, but he was probably one of the biggest influences in my life. I have so many questions about this story. First, what caused you to ask about the crucifix? I, I was just trying to avoid rejection. He was closing the door. I really did see a crucifix behind him, and I just threw it out there. And um, luckily, uh, he responded, and uh, he, he comes across as a very gruff guy. He used to own uh, Arrowhead Water in Las Vegas, and he made a fortune at it. Um, but uh, he just ended up being a, a terrific guy. How did you know you could get more than a million and a half? Because I, I was studying the land market at the time, and I could see where the comps were. I thought because it had that freeway frontage, we could get a little bit more for it, and um, we did. What's there now? Uh, industrial buildings. I think there's four, four individual industrial buildings. I think Dermody ended up subdividing it and, uh, and, and building it out. Have you ever thought about what would have happened without that deal and without Uncle Joe? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I probably wouldn't have met my wife. Um, wouldn't, I mean, I... I Maybe I would be married somewhere else, but I wouldn't be in Las Vegas. Yeah, that really saved me. How did you meet her? At a, uh, a spin class at the old uh, uh, Green Valley Athletic Club. Actually, I met her, well, I, I originally met her on the, the first NAOP bus tour. Um, she was on my bus, and I was a tour guide. And um, I was a nervous wreck, and I... I messed up on some of the developers' properties on the tour, and at the end of the tour, I was standing outside the bus, and the developer came off the bus, and he started yelling at me for, for messing up his property. And uh, he, kinda, he got me very flustered, and I didn't say anything, and, and Jeanette, my wife, came up to me and said, you handled that very well. <laughs> and, and I said, God, thank you. And so we start talking, and uh, so she's in the industry at the time. She she uh, was in furniture. She worked for uh, Maccabee Office Environments, and um, I chased her down in the parking lot at the end of the event. And I you asked her about her crucifix. You know, yeah, I asked her for her <laughs> card and if I could call her. And she had a boyfriend at the time, and then we ran into each other again. And she had uh, luckily ditched the boyfriend, so was able to get a date. And moved on from there. You have two kids together? Yes. Tell us about them. Um, my son's the oldest. He just turned 24. He's 
working with me, I think he's going to do very well. He's, um, I've never seen him so, so motivated. He, I, he was very motivated in high school doing speech and debate. He really excelled at it. And I, but I haven't seen that level of enthusiasm since he started working with me. And I, I, I love it. How long have you been working together? Uh, a little over a year. What's the most challenging thing about working with your son? Trying to treat him like you would anybody else. Say and, more about that. Well, I mean, he's your son, right? So you, 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 you don't want to be as hard on him as you would on someone else. And I think to, uh, to train someone, they've really got to get their head knocked in a few times. Not, not by you, of course, but by clients or the market or a deal. That's how you learn. And you, you hate to see so, that happen to someone, especially your son, but, but uh, it's good for them in the, in the long run. I guess people call that tough love. Tough love is hard for me, but it's, uh, it's something you got to do. And your daughter? There's probably no tough love there. It's yeah. probably all love. Yeah, it's all love. My daughter is, uh, is wonderful. She's beautiful. She's a senior at Pepperdine. She, uh, uh, I think she wants to be a stockbroker or get into the uh, financial markets, but uh, she's a senior, and I'm very proud of her. She's, uh, she's going to be 22 in a month, yeah. So we can use this as a segue to jump into some of the specific takeaways I've learned from you over the years. You talked about getting your head knocked in. You yeah. talked about tough love. So uh, 2008. Seven, the very end of 2007, the very beginning of 2008, uh, I was working with Jared Katz at a Remax commercial franchise. We very similarly uh, spent a lot of time getting some business. And then once we had the business, a lot of money putting banners on the buildings and marketing and doing an open house. And our marketing of that caught the attention of somebody who recruited us to a company called Prudential IPG. Prudential IPG was uh, the evolution of a company that you started called IPG, Industrial Property Group. Yes. So yes. tell us about, first of all, that journey of how did you decide to start a company? And I think it ran for 12 years before you oh, ultimately... 15, 15, yeah. 15 years 15 before 15 you years. sold it? Yes. Um, it started um, by me getting <laughs> me getting fired from a, uh, no way. my first brokerage company. Yeah. Um, I was at a company called Burke Commercial, which later became Lee and Associates. And um, so I left Lee. And um, can you say why you got fired? Oh, I had a difference of opinion with the manager. Uh, she, her name was Judy Woodyard, um, a, a wonderful lady. She's no longer with us, but yeah, we just had a difference of opinion. But I had a good friend, uh, Steve Gilmore. Uh, who's also no longer with us, but uh, we decided to uh, uh, form a company. And I, I really thought at the time nobody in the market was focusing on just one thing. And I loved industrial. It's all I wanted to do. And I told Steve, let's put together an industrial brokerage, and I'm going to build a database, and we're going to know everything about every building in Las Vegas. And at the time, I think there was maybe 35 million square feet of industrial at that time. Um, we were just right, we were pretty much dead even with the inventory in Reno. And um, he said, great, let's do it. 
And uh, we did. We, um, we hired a UNLV student to write a program. At the time, this was 1993, at the time there was not a program where you could combine photographs with text. And I wanted our report to have a picture of the building and then all the features of the building on the same page, and nobody had done that. So we hired a, a UNLV person who, who created a program using uh, this old software called Visual Basic, and, and, and she did it. And then we hired some young guys, uh, Rex Frazier's one, and uh, Rex actually would put on rollerblades and, and go up and down the industrial streets in Las Vegas and take pictures and do measurements and addresses, of course. And uh, <laughs> bit by bit, we got information from the county. We got information from the fire department. How long did um, it take you? From years, zero to, year, to you have a functioning database. Uh, it took about three years to get the functioning database. And then we were constantly um, improving it. And, and, and because buildings trade hands all the mm -hmm. time. So the most important thing about the database was not really the data. I mean, the data was incredibly important. But we had phone numbers and email addresses for the building owners, and which are not easy to get. And those were invaluable. Um, Would you be able to do that today? If you were starting from scratch, I it well you'd need to be a co-star. I mean, I think there's what 130 plus million square feet now. It would be an incredible task for a small company to do. So you, you were know, a 30, real innovator back then. Well, we we, we tried to be. I mean, it, like um, CB had a had a database of industrial, for example, but they didn't have any pictures, and the data. Because we used to read the reports, and the data was very limited. I, I wanted, you know, we wanted to have column spacing. We wanted to show the uh, the power, uh, the number of doors, you know, what the building could demise to, uh, obvious clear height and things like that. But we just wanted more data than was traditionally provided. So, and we did. And and we used that database mm -hmm. to uh, get business all, all the time. We depended on it. It was a, it was a great tool, great investment. So you start this company. It took you three years to build this database. Yes. And how did the company build and develop over the years? Just word of mouth, pretty much. We, um, we had wonderful people uh, working at IPG. Um, and uh, it was just a wonderful place to work. Uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of camaraderie, a lot of trust. Um, after the... Um, after I sold to uh, to Prudential, we merged with with our, uh, with Prudential, and uh, Prudential brought in a manager named Cassie Catania, and she did a a wonderful job keeping everyone's spirits up during the the dark days of 2009, 2010. Uh, she was a just a a shot of energy every day, um, but uh, it was I think it was word of mouth. But we did, we had a we had a really good thing. Um, we had a really good thing. So Cassie is still a shot of energy. She, she still just, is. She just, just won her NAOP developing national, leader. Yeah. Nationally. Yeah. NAOP developing leader. Yeah. She's quite a quite a lady. Yeah. So you kept up uh, spirits back then. You came in one day to a, a sales meeting, and you talked to us about this concept of super fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, that's just something I picked up at a 
at a, a national SIOR conference. Let's paint the, the picture. So this was about 2009. The, yeah. the sky had just fallen on planet Earth. Yes. Uh, nobody was making any money. There, was, there were no deals to be had. I say now, back then, you could come in at about 10 a.m. and leave it to with a two-hour launch, and you would have had a full day's work. <laughs> yeah. It was depressing. Yeah. It was very bad. It was, and it was especially bad in Las Vegas, worse than I think a lot of other markets. Because we sank really low. Uh, you know, other markets started to recover in 2012, maybe. We didn't really start to recover until 2000, mid-2014. But yeah, they were, they were dark days. So how important back then was this concept of super fantastic? Well, what is super fantastic and how important was it? It, it was just a way to, if you speak the words, if the words leave your mouth, it tends to pick you up. It, it, it tends to create an adrenaline. And if somebody asks you how you're doing and you say, oh, okay, the other person's going to, you know, that kind of translates back to the other person. And the other person is, is not going to be so jazzed. If a person asks you, hey, how you doing? And you say, super fantastic. But you do it in a sincere way, not a, not a funny way. Then the other person's going to feel a little better too. And it's just kind of a, a snowball effect. It's, you know, it's just a little thing, but it, it helped. So that's something that was a takeaway that never left. We, Jared and I still say it from time <laughs> to time. Another phrase you taught me early in my career, time kills deals. Absolutely. What does that mean? It means that when you, there's so many outside influences that can crater a deal to begin with, Okay. So, so a great broker wants to, to control the deal and close the deal. And, and typically, I find that it takes me five to seven closings before you actually close. And what I mean by that is, is continuing to reinforce with the buyer or the seller, the parties, you know, this transaction's moving ahead, this, this deal's going forward. But the longer a transaction hangs out there, um, the more questions that can come up, the economy can change, uh, the stock market can tank, uh, the buyers uh, could have a family member that passes away, a hurricane could hit. There's all sorts of things that can happen that are outside of your control. So you want to get the deal closed as quickly as possible. There's also something called we, that we like to call deal fatigue. And if the buyer and the seller are, are, are haggling over a deal for too long, Either one of them or both of them are going to get fed up and the deal's never going to happen. So, yeah, once you get a deal set teed up, you want to close it as soon as possible. Where's the line between pushy and urgency when you talk about time kills deals? I don't think you should ever push. And I always try to tell people, pull. You pull. You don't push. What's the difference? Well, pushing is an aggressive form of sales. Pulling is you're leading, you're guiding, you're trying to show the right way or the, the, the correct, you're trying to light a path. We're, we're called salesmen, but we're really not salesmen, okay? I don't consider myself a salesman. I don't sell people. People buy. What, what you, what you're, I, sound, you're sounding a lot like a salesman right now, Dean. Well, no, but <laughs> what, what, what is impo- what's important is um, that what I strive to be is, is an order taker, okay? So that if you come to me, Hiam, and you say, I'm looking for this, and, and I take that order, I don't need to qualify myself. You're coming to me. You know I can do it. Mm-hmm. So I've already qualified myself with you. All I need to do is show you two or three great options. 
and you pick the one you want. And then once you get to the status of being an order taker, the, the pinnacle, the top of the mountain, I think, is when you become a delivery boy. You tell me what you want. I get it for you. I know exactly what you want. I only need to show you one thing. I know it's the right one for you. I mean, that's really the pinnacle, I, I think. So there's, of, there's sort of two uh, things. Let's, let's uh, separate them and then really dive in. There's what you talked about, uh, the difference in a sale, in a specific transaction, uh, the difference of pushing and pulling, or pulling, I should say. Pulling, pulling is asking questions. Pulling is trying to get as much feedback out of your client as possible. I mean, you want to obviously build trust and rapport early on. But what I see so many young people doing that are new to the business, you know, they'll, they'll take a, a client through a building and they'll lead the way and they'll point out the clear height and it's metal halide lighting and there's 56 dock doors and column spacing and speed bays and yada, yada, yada. Instead of, I try to coach people to follow the client through the building look at what the observe look what the client's looking at you know look what he's you know listen to what he might be saying to his to his associates and then asking probing questions you know it does this particular layout was this going to work for your business you know is the parking going to work for for your employees you you probe and you try to dig and pull as much information out of your client as you can but you never push i mean every time i catch myself <clears throat> trying to sell something you know i pinch myself and, and, and say don't do that because i know if i if i if i try to sell i'm going to lose the deal just listen be patient and, and pull and extract information and then try to to use that information to find what they want so that's an example of when you're walking in and through a building how does that show up when you're maybe on the phone and having a conversation a sales transactional conversation what's a push what's a pull well <clears throat> a push is hi I'm, this building is on the market it's not going to be on the market for very long it's going to go fast you got to buy it right now that's a push so a pull is how are you you know how's the family uh how can i help you what are you looking for and and just continue to ask question 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 what young people what i don't see the young people doing is asking enough questions and and basically keeping their mouth shut don't talk listen just listen 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 and and you will do so well and and communication i i tell people look the the best form of communication is face-to-face. -face. You can learn so much sitting across the table from someone else. The second best form is a phone call because you can still hear voice inflections and tone. And the next one would be email, right? But a lot of emails can get very misconstrued and misinterpreted easily, and you can lose business over them. So I always try and tell people, whenever possible, go meet with them in person and, and the second best sales tool is is the telephone, of course. When I cold call, I people ask me a, a lot. Uh, Do you still cold call after 38 years? Yes. Uh, so people ask me, um, is it okay to cold call over the phone? And I say, absolutely not. But you can be so much more productive if you cold call over the phone. Yeah, but it's it's a it's a waste because you're really not going to get anywhere. I tell people, especially young people, to cold call in person. 
and it should be 50% of the time in the first two years because they will you learn. You mean just walk right into the business? Absolutely. And they will learn the buildings. They will learn what's out there. On a call, it might take longer to get out of my chair, drive down to the area, yep. get out of my car, walk around the building, walk into the building. But at the same time, I'm, I am taking in an infinite amount more data about what it is infinite. that I'm doing. And you may not get, like, when I cold call in person, it, it never fails. It's one out of every 10 calls is a lead. And... Um, well, you're right. I mean, I may only make 10, be able to make 10 calls in person, and I might be able to make 40 calls on the telephone. But the 40 calls, I, first I got to get through a secretary, and then I got to see if the guy's even going to take my call, and then I, hopefully I'll get a call back, but usually not. But the information that, like you said, when you call in person, you'll see buildings that you might make a note, a mental note of that you're going to follow up on that building a, a month from now because you didn't see a lot of cars in the parking lot or, mm. or you, you noticed something that was That's unusual. That's a data set that you could see with your eyes and, yes. and it, it triggers something. Yes. Yeah. Whereas you will never get that looking on Google Earth. Yeah. I mean, like the, like the cold call I made when, you know, when we started talking, I, I just noticed this it was kind of a shack on this big, beautiful piece of land. That's a good point. And I thought, what the heck? is that shack doing there? That would be a great industrial site. So, um, and it, you would never know that sitting at your desk with a telephone. So now let's go into the other part of what you were saying, where you're going from being an order taker, the pinnacle is a delivery boy. Right. So I feel like that's more, uh, you know, I don't know how to phrase it, positioning yourself in the market or with your clients. So you start out, you cold call for two, three years, you're building a, a database, you're, you're building a, a reputation, and you get to a point where you've built trust and rapport, and you've got a book of business and a clientele, and now you can put yourself uh, to work for them as an order taker like you talked about. So what's the difference between an order taker and then transitioning to a delivery boy? Well, in my opinion, um, a really, really good broker can deliver the goods, okay? Um, it's um, oftentimes very challenging, especially in the market right now, where, where there's a lot of off-market deals, to be able to actually know when you tell a client, yes, I can get you this building for X, that you really can. How do you know that? I guess just through experience and also because you've already worked on that side of the deal before you ever bring it to your client. So your client knows, hey, Hyam knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. I trust him. I know he's got control of that property because I know Hyam. Hyam's a bulldog. He never lets go. So I, I trust Hyam as a delivery boy. But that's what I mean by that, that you can, you're actually can deliver upon what you say you can deliver upon. So it sounds like to get into that position, it takes an enormous amount of work, and it's a different kind of work. It's, a, it's like a deeper kind of work. You have to go and, like you're saying, canvas the area, meet the people, build rapport, have probing conversation, almost anticipate what their needs are going to be before they do. And on the other side, knowing the – so that's the supply side – knowing the demand, who are the buyers out there, who, where are the needs, and how can I match them – before it gets to a point where somebody else has done it, the overall brokerage community has done it and, and listed it publicly on a on a website somewhere. Correct. So you're like a ninja. 
no, I'm, I just do my homework. All right. And, and what I'm trying to teach uh, Michael and my partner Alex is, is to do the homework beforehand and, and be prepared. Um, I don't think it's uh, very effective to go into a meeting uh, without having thoroughly researched the property and, and know what you're talking about before you go into a meeting or, or try to make a presentation. It's coming to light why so many successful brokers in our market started out with you. <laughs> oh, thank you. We talked about time kills deals. You brought up deal fatigue. There's yeah. something else that you said that has never left me. You spend your entire career building your reputation, and it can blow up over one deal. Yes. Oh, God, absolutely. Um, so we're, we're 100% commission brokers, you and me. And there's always that temptation where you've got a big commission hanging out there. Um, you know, do I, do I let the client know that this building was built on an old Indian, you know, graveyard? And of course you do. That, that should never be a question because you make, you know, you make one mistake. You, you fail to disclose something that you should have disclosed and years of hard work and reputation all goes down the tubes with one deal. Or you, you treat another broker unfairly. Or you treat a client unfairly. I mean, I've, I've always told people that I've worked with or trained to that I believe you treat your, your brokers, you know, brokers in the office and brokers throughout the everywhere. You treat them as well, if not better, than you treat your clients because the brokers in your market and in other markets, you're going to do multiple, multiple deals with them in your lifetime. And they're your best source of new business without question. They're really your partners. I mean, I, I, early on in the business, I treated other brokers as competition. Mm-hmm. And um, Uncle Joe actually told me, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't treat them like competition. And uh, uh, he said you should treat them like they're your partner. And because they are. I mean, how many deals do other brokers bring you every year mm-hmm. on your listings and vice versa? So I just I think that that is uh, that's critical. I remember our office was located very close to yours back in the Prudential IPG mm-hmm. building. And I, was, I could hear you from my office on the phone. Something happened. There, there was an upset client on the other end of the line. And I remember you saying, I don't want our relationship to end like this. You know, let's go to lunch and end it on a, on a different note. Yes. And that was really the, the, the effort that you put in. It was, look, the guy's upset. What's done is done. You can't go back. You can't change it. I don't remember what it was. Couldn't hear what it was. I don't remember what it was. But I remember specifically you were putting in so much effort to not let him hang up the phone and that be the end of it to get a face-to-face meeting with that person. Yeah, I mean, relation. I mean, you hear it. It's such a, a cliche in our business. Hey, you know, the business is all about relationships, but my gosh, it is. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've definitely made a lot of mistakes. I have, I'm sure I've irritated more than a few clients or customers, uh, but you, you just, you try your best not to let it happen. It's, it's inevitably going to happen, but your reputation is everything in this business. And, um, 
it's it's way more valuable than losing a deal. You know, like I've told Michael and and everyone I've trained, it's uh, you disclose everything. And the important thing is you disclose it as soon as you know about it. Because if you disclose it, if you know about it and you hold on to it and you don't disclose it and you wait till the end, say, gosh, I I better tell them now, Mm. then the deal's probably going to crater. But if you tell them way ahead of time, it's probably not going to crater. But the important thing is, is you tell them everything. And, it's uh, not just going to crater. It's going to crater, and then they're going to yeah, never trust then, you again and, and hate the, your guts for it. And sue you, probably. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's yeah, it's really important, obviously. So I want to shift away for a second into another topic, and then we're going to come back. Um, one thing I learned from you back in the IPG days was the importance of, for you, it's running, staying active. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's easy in this business to get caught up and stay in the office extra hours and just keep working and keep working and keep working. So how did you come to uh, incorporate, for you, it's running or uh, basically, um, you know, physical fitness into your, into your life and your routine? I mean, I've, I've always been active in sports. One of my uh, good friends had told me about uh, triathlons. This was, uh, gosh, probably 18 years ago, maybe. And um, I didn't know how to swim. So he told me about a guy that... Uh, taught swimming at the Henderson Multigen, a guy named Frank Lowry. And so I, I, he taught me how to swim, uh, and I, I loved it, and I started doing the biking and the running. And there's several real estate guys that, that do it as well, and, and we just had a great time. I, t- I can tell you I don't do them anymore. Um, I stopped doing them about eight years ago. It was too hard on my body. But it is the most... The greatest feeling you'll ever have is when you finish one of those races. Um, I used to tell my wife I could drive my car into a tree on the way home, and it'd still be a great day, <laughs> still be the greatest day ever, because you have such a feeling of euphoria. And I, and I, I, um, I still try to work out as much as I can. It's a, it's a, there's no better stress reliever, and it's a great way to. I used to think about deals on runs and come up with ideas, or when I was swimming, or biking, and and. Uh, it's just a great release. What other nugget that's not business related should young brokers or even established professionals uh, keep top of mind? Actually, wrote a couple things down. For young young brokers, I would um, I'll, I would say the first thing that I was told by those two guys at Grubb and Ellis that I started with, I think I was a junior in college. They said. Make makeable deals. <laughs> oh, I remember so, this. So they, so they even was, printed just, it out. I want to interrupt for a second. Yeah. This was another thing you came out with to the entire office. It was 2009. You said this is the year that we've, we all have to focus on making the makeable deals. Yep. Just the same as the super fantastic. Yeah, and what I mean by that is you focus your time and your energy on the deals that you know you have the highest chance of success making you don't i see brokers chasing elephant deals all the time and they spend so much time and resources on deals that they have like a five percent chance of making you spend you know 95 percent of your time on the deals that have a very high likelihood of closing and and that's very important the uh, uh, another thing is i see a lot of young people they focus way too much on their competition. They, 
they see other guys in the office closing big deals or closing a lot of deals, and it, and it kind of stresses them out. And, and another thing Uncle Joel told me, which I thought was great advice, is he says, don't focus on your competition. Focus on your deals and make your competition focus on you. So, so just keep your head down and focus on doing the, getting the deals done that are, that are right in front of you and make them. And um, it doesn't matter what your competition is doing because that will build your career. And um, I would say don't ever accept a listing that you know in your heart you can't sell. Uh, just to put a sign up, I, I think that's... Oh, that's so hard to do, especially when you're just starting very out. Very hard to do. But, yeah, it's, um, you just don't want to do that. I, I, I tell brokers or, or new guys, um, only sell stuff that you believe in. If you, can't, if you don't believe in it, you can't sell it. You know, don't, don't tell a, a client that he can get a certain lease rate or a certain price that you know in your heart you can't get. And, um, you know, if, if that means you don't get the listing, so be it. Move on. Just, just like I said, move on to – because even if you get the listing, right, and you put time and energy in it, there's a very slim chance of success because it's way overpriced. So that goes back to the make makeable deals. Yeah, well, there's a little bit more there, and in that, in that belief drives behaviors. So if I'm just trying to get the listing, even though I don't believe I will ever sell it at the price, one, I did my client a disservice, but two, I'm not going to show up to work every day with the kind of behaviors that I need to sell this thing because I don't believe it in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. What else do you have? These are great. Keep them going. Um... I tell people no gossip. Um, it doesn't benefit anybody. And um, avoid negative selling. What's an example of negative selling? Where you're showing your client's listing, you're trying to convince a tenant to, to take the space in your listing, and he mentions the pro property across the street. And you say, oh, you don't want to look at that property. That's a terrible property. The landlord's a jerk. And... The rent's way overpriced and the roof leaks, and that's, that's negative selling. You, you want to focus on the features and the benefits of the property that you have. You don't want to put down somebody else's property just to make your property look better, if that makes sense. Sure, but why? I just... What if those things are true? Because the word gets around, and they'll say, oh, Hiam, man, that Hiam's been talking bad about your property, and that... That stuff does get around. So it goes back to reputation. Yeah. Go back to no gossip. No gossip is just avoid office gossip. It never benefits anybody. And plus, it's a, it's a, it takes away from your time selling. So just focus on your job. And, and I, I would just I tell people to stay away from that. The other thing I tell people, uh, young people, is that um, ask yourself... <clears throat> four or five times a day, is what I am doing right now going to make me money? And if it's not, don't stop doing it and focus on what is going to make you fun money, like being on the phone talking to people. Mm -hmm. like, like I see people filling out you know, commission paperwork, or they'll be filling out some kind of a report or a letter or something like that, that they should be doing either very early in the morning or after five o'clock, the busy work. 
you know, during that eight to five, that's your that's your window to make money in this business. And and don't waste your time with administrative stuff during the, the peak selling hours. So ask yourself all the time, is what I am doing right now going to make me money? Do you still do that? Yeah. After all this time, you haven't created a muscle memory around? Well, I probably do it automatically. But um, like reports and, uh, I mean, we do all kinds of reports, et cetera. We have a, we have a great graphics department at Collier, so they, they do a wonderful job taking the, that part of the work off our plates, which nowadays graphics and marketing is very time-intensive. So we're lucky we have that. But, yeah, I try to do my contracts at noon, you know, between at lunchtime or I get in early to do them. Um, just so I don't, just so I can focus on, on selling. So, so this is your, your adaptation of time blocking, but you know, we've heard the term, you know, just take it day by day. This is so critical. It sounds like that you take it many times a day where you just check in is what I'm doing, making me money right? four or five times throughout the work day. So this is, you take this very seriously. Mm-hmm. I was, well, I was, I, I didn't come up with that, uh, well, one of the guys that, you, that you've trained adopted me told it. me, yeah, I've adopted it, yeah. Oh, I'm, and the last thing I would say is um, to, to someone new getting in the business is invest your commissions in real estate if you can. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do see a lot of brokers that have made a lot of money. and, and um, they, why, they, why real estate? Well, God, because it's the greatest investment there is, um, I think. And because um, how much better of a salesman you will be when you've been there and done that and you've owned the property and you've managed the property and you've leased the property and your own money was at risk. So you can, it's, a, it's kind of a, a testimonial. Mm. You have that additional experience that you can offer to your clients and customers. Well, hey, I've, I've been there. I know what happened in this situation? Here's what I did to fix it. I Plus, thought you were going. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I just, I, I, we, we sometimes can make big money, and sometimes it's we don't make a lot of money. But when we make those big commissions, instead of spending it or blowing it, squirrel it away into real estate wherever you can or other investments. But I think real estate's the best, and try to create for yourself alternative sources of income as you get older um because you know we're not young forever and and um i just think it's important during the down times and the peaks and the valleys that we have in real estate that brokers try to find alternative sources to replace commissions that might not be coming in at the time and um that will increase their their long-term survivability tenfold so so when you were b- backing up a bit, when you were talking about how in, uh, important marketing has become and how time intensive it has become, it's it's something that's evolved in our industry. There's something that I want to bring up and have you comment on. You were the first to bring it up. You weren't the last, uh, as I have evolved in my career, is how transformative technology is in our industry and specifically the fax machine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, that's... Uh... So Jeff Finn, who... Currently CEO of Rolnex. Before that, his family started NAI Global, and he was a CEO of NAI Global, creating a top five 
marketing brand in the world. He talked about for them as a multi-market network, how transformative the fax machine became. It was amazing. And how much resistance there was to adopt. It's, it sounds so stupid thinking back now about that. It was such a huge time saver. Um, I mean, remember, I, when, and I don't mean to, I'm really going to make myself look old, but when I started, um, I would carry in my briefcase uh, blank lease agreements, complete lease agreements. And if I showed a building and it worked, then they, we would fill out the lease agreement right there. And then the fax machine came along, and then we could start faxing documents back and forth so that the clients would have more time and opportunity to review them and things like that. The fax machine was an incredible time saver. But, yeah, we've, we've, uh, we've seen a lot of technology um, in our lifetimes. The technology today, um, I'm just thankful that we have such great professionals that we can depend on to do these beautiful graphic packages that we, we can do now. Um, it's, it's art. And uh, anyway, I'm thankful we have that. Is there any technology now that you see coming into our industry that will be as transformative as the fax machine? That's a great question. At the, at the moment, no. That, there's nothing that I'm seeing. No, there's nothing I'm seeing. Are you seeing anything? There's a very large conversation around blockchain and what that could ultimately do. I mm-hmm. don't think that that's in front of our face as far as being transformative, truly transformative. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that's dancing around the fringes right now. But what's interesting, hearing you talk, I feel like everyone's, quote-unquote, trying to disrupt this industry. What would actually disrupt it is if they found something to continue to give people their time back, as opposed to if they think about it in terms of, oh, well, here's the the next great gadget. Well, does this gadget give me more time? And if it did, I think that would be a transformative technology. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think people are, in fact, this this new generation – I think in some ways the next generation is kind of embracing the old ways. Um, and I, like we said in the beginning, it's, it's a um, cliche, but it is a relationship business. And it's still the best way to close a deal is face-to-face, even today. Even if your client is, you know, 25 years old, they still appreciate that personal touch. I don't think we'll ever get away from that. I think the technology that we have today is... Um, is almost overpowering, and it's very difficult to try and, and do all of it. I mean, we're me and, and Mike and Alex, uh, we're going to set up a uh, a Twitter account. We're gonna we're gonna do an Instagram account. We'll probably just focus on those two um, for now. And uh, but if you try to do all of it, you you would never have all of this stuff takes away from your time to sell. And the primary thing you want to do every day is sell. You cannot get away from that. Um, and that's, I guess that's another thing for young people. I mean, that's why you show up for work every day because you are there to take care of people and to solve problems and, uh, and sell. So after 38 years, what gets you to show up to work still every day? Oh, I love, I love the people the most. I, um, I've had a few bad clients, but very few. I, uh, I have learned amazing things from my clients. Uh, 
they are such I'm I'm fascinated by how these guys got started, how they were able to build such great companies. Um, and they most most all of them, ninety eight percent of them, they're just really wonderful people. And uh, that's that's what I get out of it. I just I love the people. I mean, some of the technology you see is cool. It's actually getting cooler than it's been because we're seeing kind of a resurgence in manufacturing. It was pretty dull for a while because it was all distribution, but it, it's kind of getting it's getting cool again. So, well, I think that's a great note to end on, uh, Dean. Thank you very much for for coming in and doing this. Every time I sit down, I come out with a lot of takeaways. I've, I mean, you could see this. I have so many notes front and back on this piece of paper in front of me. It's, it's really hard for me to recap all the additional takeaways that I've gotten from this conversation, but I think mostly, uh, fundamentals are fundamentals, you know, supply and demand, uh, is critical, uh, that innovation is also critical back early in your career when you started a database, spent the money and the time to really change the game for IPG and in a way how the industry does business. Uh, cold calling never goes away. Person, interpersonal communication never goes away. And, you know, these other, you know, I, I would say lessons for not just people new to the business, but people established in the business. Make the makeable deals. Don't focus on your competition. Only sell what you believe. Avoid gossip. Avoid negative selling. And check in with yourself four or five times a day is what I'm doing right now the most productive. Thanks so much for for doing this, Dean. It was an honor, and thank you for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'd love to hear your feedback and your takeaways from this episode. Make sure to leave us a comment, leave us a review. Tune in next time. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways Podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like this show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.